Well, let's turn to our scripture, to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, as we continue, we actually finished this section on submission. The, the implications of uh, this passage will continue on. But living right before unbelievers, the call t- to how we live, the call to what we reflect, the call to who God is, directly impacts our lives with unbelievers. It also directly impacts the power in which we live our lives. And so this morning, as we look at that, our text is dealing with this idea of being called to submit and to suffer. That's a quite, uh, those are the two uh, bad words that most people don't want to hear. Most Americans don't want to hear submit, and they don't want to hear suffer. That's not the American way. The American way is not to submit and not to suffer. And so I know that this is contrary to our culture. But I want us to realize that God's culture is dramatically different than anybody's culture. See, God's culture is opposite of any culture in the world. And God is calling us to live according to his way. And I fear this is one of the main, most, uh, one of the biggest misconceptions in Christianity is this idea of dealing with suffering and submission. Uh, this misconception has caused so many people to misunderstand who God is and what God has called us as believers to be. Not only that, but what he's calling us out of. Um, This misconception has really changed the way a lot of people have viewed Christianity today, the way they view church today, the way they view relationships in church today, the way they view the relationship of church to the relationship of our society. And I want us to consider these implications of what it means to be called to submission and to suffer. God has really called us to a greater purpose than to actually enjoy this world. The things that we enjoy is by grace and mercy, but not by right. And I want us to think about that implication as we read through our text this morning. Again, we're just focusing on 1 Peter 2, verses 21 through 25. But I want us to, again, focus on the greater context that begins in verse 11 of 1 Peter 2. Two, which again comes out of God's holiness. And what he told us back in chapter 1, that because of our salvation, we are supposed to follow him who is holy. And we are supposed to be holy because he is holy. We are supposed to live out of what has been given to us. And because of that, there's an implication of how we live with unbelievers. And we're called to this act of submission. So before we read our text, let's ask the Lord to bless our time together and to bless his word. Lord, I pray that we would honor your word, that we would treat it as holy, because Lord, you are holy. 
that we would not treat this as a book, we would not treat this as wise sayings, but we would listen to your holy word. Word that you gave us through the power of your your spirit to give us understanding, to lead us back to you. So Lord, I pray that you would give us the ears to listen and the ears to understand, the ears, Lord, not to be offended by your text, but Lord, to be encouraged by the life that you have given us and what you have called us to and how to deal with the world in which we live. So Lord, I thank you so much for the principles that you are laying out for us. Give us your understanding, I pray. Bless your word as we read it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First Peter chapter 1. Listen to God's word as we look at his text. And as he starts out with this idea of submission, again, it's because of his holiness. It's because of what he's called us to. It's because we were adopted into his family. We are not intended to be children of this world. And he starts in verse 11, and he continues as he says, Behold, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from the fleshly lust which wage war against your soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the kings as supreme or to the governors or as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using your liberty as a cloak for vice, But as servants of God, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only for the good and gentle, but also to those who are harsh. For this is commendable if because of your conscience towards God, uh, conscience towards God, one endures grief suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently, but when you do good and suffer for it, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to do this, you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his Steps or follow in his footsteps. Who committed no sin, nor was guile found in his mouth? Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return? When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness. But those by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. This is 
quite an amazing passage filled with quite an amazing things. And we remember in verses 11 through 13, we see this is the primary goal of the passage leading us all the way to what we are looking at today. And that is, our goal is to is not to glorify our rights, right? It's not about us. When, as we look at the goal of our life, is not to focus on our rights, but the goal, what God has put forth, as we live our lives before unbelievers, before those who don't understand God, who have not been redeemed by God, who have not been saved from their sins, it is our goal that our lives bring people to the point of glorifying God when they see our good deeds, when they see the work that God has called us to, when they see the way we submit to people, that it is to reveal who God is to people. It's not about our rights. It is about glorifying the Lord. We, we get so mixed up in this concept today. We don't understand what submitting is. God has a natural order of things that he is calling us to, to live according to God's order, according to God's plan. That's the idea behind submission. So when we say that we're called to submission, we're called to live under God's order, not the order of the world, not to live according to our flesh, not to live according to our desires, not to focus on our emotions, not to focus on... Uh, the, the possessions that we can gain in this world, but to think about the order in which God has adopted us into. It's like this. It's like we see this beautiful mansion that that is where God lives and we walk up to this mansion and it's surrounded by a gate because God's holiness is separate from the rest of the world and they can't mix. And this gate, gated community which God lives is totally separate from the rest of society. And we walk up to God's house and we, we, we look at it with great awe and, and beauty and we say, wow, this is so amazing. God is so beautiful. God is so amazing. And, and we're like, I, I, I am out here. I am worthless. I am sinful. I, I cannot compare to that. And I need, I need something I need something. I'm missing something. I cannot get in to live there. And God says that he sent his son to redeem us, to purchase us out of the slavery of our sin, to unlock that door and to allow us into his family, to to be adopted. We were adopted by the blood of Christ. And and he enters us in and we stand there at the house and and we look at this beautiful house and we're like I am so blessed I can't believe I'm in the family of God and I'm standing at the door and I keep looking at the world and saying wow I, I, I that that's that's amazing that's beautiful or I can't believe the way the world is living I can't believe all that's going on and, oh it's so hard it's so miserable this is horrible and you're standing on the doorstep of the mansion of God. And all you can do is compare your life to the world. And you stand there and you don't enjoy what God has given you. You're not, 
You're not inside. We are adopted into the family of God. We are given a seat at God's table as his children. And yet many times we're going to the windows and we're going to the door and we're looking where we were purchased from and those circumstances are driving the thoughts and practices of our life. And in our text, and in specifically, he's saying, look, that this is, the goal is, is that our job is not to point to us. Our job is not to point to the world. Our job is to point everything to our Savior. We're called. Do you see the I, the idea behind this calling is, is that it means to speak to another person in order to bring them nearer. We were called by the blood of Christ, by what Christ did when he suffered for our sake. He called us to be nearer to God so we can see God, so we can enjoy God, so we can have peace with God, so we can sit at his table. And he's saying that's what we were called We were called to suffer in the world that is suffering unto death. We were called to not necessarily be controlled by the suffering, but submit to the Lord. This idea of submission that he put forth is what God is calling us to. As a believer, we're not just called into his family, but we're called to live in the actual footsteps that Christ lived. And this is the greatest problem. Today, people are like, we're called to love the way that God loves, and they focus on God's love, but they miss the whole concept is that we are called to imitate God and to be adopted into his family and to walk as he walked. Not to imitate the way the world views love, not to the way they imitate the world views security, not to to value the same values of the world. These, this idea of calling and this idea here in our text in verse 21 of uh, the example that he's given us, um, it is, this word example is amazing. It means to, to be written under or writing under. Um, it is, it's the, basically the idea, you know, in kindergarten when when you go to school and in kindergarten, you're given a sheet of paper with your ABCs, right? And what does the teacher do? Does the teacher say, okay, I want you to write your ABCs? Or does the teacher give you a paper with dotted ABCs? Your ABCs that are already written out, and what does she tell you to do, or he tell you to do? He says, I want you to trace over the what? Well, he wants you to follow the dots or trace. The teacher has already written under what you're supposed to follow. The, the, the actual word here is expressing that exact same picture of when we go to school, the teacher already writes under what you're supposed to do. All that we're supposed to do in kindergarten is trace it. Learn to, to trace it and to follow the steps of our writing. This is amazing. The idea is exactly what God is saying. God has already traced out with his steps 
in his life how we are supposed to submit and how we are supposed to live in the midst of suffering. God has given us the example. Pastor, how can I deal with this? How can I live this way? How can I deal with all the injustices? How can I deal with all of these things? Well, God has given us the principles in this text. He says, now look, I have given you the example through my son, through Christ. In fact, he even quotes Isaiah 53 in this passage, the passage that we read earlier. This is so profound. We are to mimic, imitate, and the idea of the fact that it says here that each step, uh, it says that we should follow in his footsteps. It's, it's looking carefully for each step so that way you put your step in each step that he has taken. And he is going to give us five steps in the next few verses of how we are carefully supposed to step in order to live submissive lives in the midst of our suffering. And you say, this is so important. I don't know how many of you, have anybody ever walked on, like in, um, you know, when I was in Alaska, we walked on lots of frozen lakes. How many, has anybody ever walked on anything frozen before? Okay. I don't know about you, but when we lived in Alaska, we were told that when we walk out on this lake or we walk on, that the leader is going to walk and make steps. And our job is to follow those footsteps and carefully lift our feet, put our weight in the exact same places that he put his weight. So that way we don't go through the ice. And that's the same picture here. The picture of following his footsteps is carefully looking at each step that Jesus made so then that way we don't fall through the cracks. The thing is, is we know that we are not perfect the way that Jesus is perfect. We know that, that we don't we don't live we don't have the exact same ability that he is he lived on this earth without sin it says but yet he is telling us that he showed us each step to take and he's telling us that the command here is that we are supposed to strive for that it's amazing even though that we are not above reproach we are not without sin we are yet God is still commanding us to strive, and this is our calling, is to look at each step that Jesus took and follow his example. You know, most students that I know have better handwriting skills now that they've graduated than when they entered elementary school, right? Unless you will look at my handwriting. I, I'm like a doctor. I, I think anybody that goes through college, their handwriting dies, you have to write. Back when I was in college, we still took handwritten notes. Today, they just record everything and dictate it. So it's cheating. But we had to write notes, and I, I, I think college ruined my handwriting. And, uh, but most people, when they graduate from junior high, from grade school to junior high, they actually can make formed letters and sentences. I said most, right? Some of us are exceptions. But that's the idea. There's something that we're supposed to strive for regardless of whether we're perfect or not. 
Jesus suffered for our sake. He gave us an example. Let me give you an idea. Think about all that he went through. Luke 9, 58 tells us that Jesus was homeless. He had no place to lay his head. Uh, John 1, 11 says that he was going to be rejected by men. John 10, 20, he was accused of demon possession. He was accused of being demon possessed. The son of God. He was, uh, so when anybody accuse you of being a little strange, don't worry. God was accused. Uh, that's why I always, by the way, you girls, I see my weirdo row went from there to here. <laughs> I, went, I looked right there. They weren't there. They confused me. I call them weird, and they're like, and then they say, oh, well, you're weird too. And I said, thank you for the compliment. Everybody called, thought Jesus was weird. He was betrayed by his disciples in Matthew 26. He was abandoned by his friends. Matthew 26, 56. Talk about it. You say, man, pastor, my friends have abandoned me. Hey, you're in good company. Jesus has walked in those steps. He was scourged or he was beaten by Roman soldiers. He was spit on. He was brutally abused. Brutally abused. Mark 15, 15. Uh, Matthew 27, he, again, he was mocked and abused. He was abused both verbally and physically. He was crucified. He was forsaken by God. And he, you think about it, every aspect of all of these things that Christ suffered is not dissimilar from anything that we would experience in this world. And he gave us principles to follow. He gave us these, these principles. He says, this is how to submit in a world that's not perfect. This is how to deal with the things in your life. And this is how to deal with our suffering. And he gives a, the first step is, is found in, in verse 22. He says, he says, follow his footsteps. And he says, who committed no sin? When we are dealing with an, an area of submission, we have to first say, this is about God. It's not about our employer. It's not about our government. It's not about our relationships within church. It's not about the leaders. It's about God. And we have to look to God and say, it is about who is really in control. And it's about choosing not to commit sin. It's saying just because you are suffering, we have to, we're not given the, just this over-blanket statement. Well, you have a horrible leader in your life and or you have a horrible relationship in your life, so you have a blanket, you know, you have a blanket ticket to just sin. When when Jesus experienced the suffering on our behalf, he, he chose not to sin. He couldn't sin because of his holiness, because of who he was. I want you to sink, let this sink in, is that we know that Jesus lived free from sin. And that's an amazing thought. He lived his entire life without sin. No matter what he went through, he did not sin. No matter how he was persecuted, he did not sin. And we, will, we, because of our flesh, can never live 
that way. And people think, well, because I'm not perfected and because I don't live in heaven, then it's not that big of a deal if I do sin. No, it is a big deal. The command in this passage is that we follow in each of his steps. And we have to make it a priority to look at our life and say, I'm going to choose not to sin even though that things are not good in my life. That I'm dealing with suffering and I'm dealing with submission issues. You know how we can submit the way that God wants us to is by choosing to deal with our sin. That's why he said in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, be angry and do not sin. Okay? Something in your life has created an extra amount of emotion and energy to deal with it. But we're not given the, the freedom to sin. That is not who God is. And he's saying walk in those steps. Walk carefully. And don't sin. Why? Because verse 27, and give no opportunity to the devil. Don't give Satan a foothold anywhere in your life. That's the idea. Is The first principle that we see here in how we deal with submission and to be able to submit in an imperfect world where we're, being, where we're dealing with suffering is that we have to choose to look to God and say, I'm not going to sin. The second one is to choose not to bend the facts. And you say, well, where do you get that? Well, look at the very next thing he says. Nor was guile found in his mouth. The next step when Jesus, in his life, that he lived on our behalf to impute, to give us his righteousness and to free us from the, the death of sin, the grips of sin, and to give us his righteousness so we can have a relationship and be at peace with God, is he didn't, he didn't have any guile. He didn't change the facts. There was no deceit found in his mouth. He didn't look at the facts and, and, and bend them in such a way that he could win the argument. Or he didn't bend the facts in such a way that he could get his own way. In a sense, he didn't defend himself. There was no guile, there was no deceit found in his mouth. It's amazing if you look through scripture how often God deals with this subject, right? James tells us that the, the rudder of our life is so small, but yet it is so destructive. The tongue, the things that we say, even though it's so small, can actually create big fires, that just sweeping fire that destroys so much. Psalm 63, or I'm sorry, Psalm 36 says, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep, the wicked deep in his heart, where there is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. See how he flatters so that way nobody can see his own iniquity. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. The same word used here for guile in the New King James. There was no, that's not, this is not the heart of God. 
Uh, he has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while he is on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not. Uh, he doesn't reject evil. There's deceit. Proverbs twelve twenty. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but those who plan peace have joy. It's a different place. Their heart is given to joy. For those who do good, but those who do evil, there's deceit found in their mouth. Colossians 4, 6, Let your speech be in a way with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. Our ability to deal with this world depends on how we choose to bend the facts. If we let truth speak for itself, we will then reflect God's glory. But when we choose to bend the facts to benefit us, no matter what the assumption is, no matter what it is, that guile, that deceit has come from a fact that we're trying to hide our heart or produce something that isn't according to God's plan. Our conversation can edify Build up the church. Remember, the church is God's bride. How do we want the bride to look when Christ comes back? What, do, how do we, what kind of dress do we want the bride? How do we, we want it to be described? No doubt many of us have struggled with this. And because of deceitful things, because of we, we're not submitting. We're not living a life of submission because of what is found in our hearts, the deceit, the way we bend facts and how we choose to, to bend facts to our desires. The third principle, in order to be able to live a life of submission to God and to deal with our suffering is choose not to trade insults, right? Look, it says, There was no guile found in his mouth, who when he re was reviled, he did not revile in return. Jesus did not use the opportunity when he was ridiculed. Think about it. The things that they said about Jesus were so grossly untrue. Think about what they were saying about him. They were in no way true. There was not even an appearance of truth. Think about how when somebody talks about us and we know it's not true, what are we quick to do? When somebody insults us, we say, well, pastor, you don't understand what they did to me. Do you understand what they did to Christ? It doesn't even hold a candle to what, I, what somebody did to you. If we are going to live a life that's submitting to God, that is in submission, how can we do that? Well, we stop trading insults for insults. If somebody insults you, that doesn't give you the right to insult them back. You may, you're like, well, pastor, but it's not true. Then live the life that God has given you to glorify Him that when they see your good deeds your good works that you're doing on his behalf, that they glorify the Father which is in heaven. 
Our goal is never for people to glorify us, it's to glorify God. I love Jesus has given us the greatest example of this. Jesus set the greatest example for our conduct. It is, it is not our obligation to return vengeance on those who have wronged us. For some reason, that has come into the church and we feel like, well, that's not right, so I'm going to do this. I'm going to say this about them. Where has that idea come from? That is not the steps that God has given us. Romans 12, 16 and 17 says, Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the, low, the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. By the way, when you notice, all the verses that we read so far always talk about our gaze has to be on the Lord. It can't be on ourselves. Repay no one evil for evil, nor give thought to do what is... But, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. That sight of all, by the way, is in reference to our sight of God. Don't repay evil for evil. Some reason we think that because we are wronged, it's okay to wrong other people. That is not the intent. It doesn't mean that they're right. Right? I just had to live this in my own life in the last couple months. And trust me, it is extremely difficult. But the benefits far outweigh how hard it is. The benefit is a person coming back months later and apologizing for the insult and, and what they said because of no defense, no speaking guile, no bending it to your way. You have to choose to do this. It's a choice. The fourth one is this. It doesn't get any easier, by the way. Choosing, it's just an outflow of choosing not to sin. Choosing not to make threats. He didn't, he didn't revile in return when he suffered. He did not threaten, but committed himself to the one who judges righteously. He did not threaten. So not only do you not return evil for evil, but even more than that, you don't even make threats. If you don't stop doing this, I'm going to do this. Well, that, as I say that, I, that kind of hits home as a parent, right? <laughs> Here's the idea. Is we, that is not how we live. We don't go around making threats. People are like, yeah, you don't make threats you can't keep. <laughs> no, you don't make threats, period. Right? The idea we have lost so focused on our life, why we were given our salvation, when we're so focused on what other people are doing and we have to go make threats to get our way. And we're not focusing on what is God's way. We have now began to deviate on a different path. The light that God has created us to do is to be submitting to his order of things so that way we can deal with the suffering. We have to choose not to make threats. And this only works if we do the fifth thing. And that is choose to put your life in God's hands. Do you know how we make it through suffering? Do you know how we can submit the way that God has designed us to submit, to live a life of submission, 
is only by putting our life in God's hands. We, we either rely on other people far too much for our life, our well-being, our emotional stability, or we actually rely on ourselves far too much. Choose not to put your life in the world's hands. Why do we let the things of the world determine what our life is based on? Do you think about that? The world in which we live is passing away. We can see the decay every day. Life does not get better in this world. And yet, for some reason, we keep looking to it as if it's going to bring some stability to our life. If I just earn more money, if I just get more things, if I just have more friends, or if I just have the perfect leaders in my life, right? There is no such thing, right? If that's what you're looking for, you're going to be the most miserable. Unless we are looking to to God. The words are so beautiful in this passage. It says, he did not threaten, but look what he did do. All those other things were things he didn't do, but this is one thing that he did do. But committed himself to him who judges righteously. The word committed to literally means he entrusted his life to. It means he handed over everything in his life, all of his rights, the, the word here literally means handing everything that is in his life, all of his rights, he handed over to him who judges righteously. God is saying this is the step that we have to take in order for all the others to work. We can't choose to, to, to be, you know, choose not to sin. We can't choose to to not bend the facts, to let our words dictate and to trade insults. We can't choose not to threaten, and we can't choose to do that unless we actually do this one thing, and that is say, Lord, here is my life. I am entrusting it to you. Right? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your, lean not on your own understanding. All your ways acknowledge him. That acknowledgement... And then he'll make your path straight. This was commonly used, by the way, this idea of entr- keeping entrustment. It was, it was commonly used, uh, used of delivering up a criminal to police or a court for punishment. It was included the idea of one being given over to another's power, and in this case, meaning giving one's self or rights over to God that is our righteous and most holy judge. Jesus made it his, his, he made it to the cross. He made it through his suffering. He made it through all the things that happened to him because he committed himself to the Lord. That, and that's where we get into the questions. Do you see why this is so important? Our goal is not to glorify our rights, but to bring people to the point of glorifying God. If we are so focused on glorifying our rights, we will not experience the ability to get through the suffering which God has placed us in. 
God specifically says, here are my footsteps, trace them. We want to live a, submit, a life submission to, submitting to God. This is God. we got to say, Lord, here is my life. I am in your hands. That's how church works. That's how our lives work. That's how our relationships with unbelievers work. In order for our life with unbelievers to work, you have to follow these five steps. If we, if, if we are prioritizing our rights and feelings, it will be hard-pressed to bring others to the point of seeing how great our God is. You ever think about what's missing in church today? It's, we can't focus on our rights and privileges. The more that we speak about our rights and privileges, the less we see of God. Will you entrust your circumstances to God? Are you, are you saying, I'm in God's hands, so the circumstances that I'm living are his circumstances? Are you trusting God like that? Are you, have you submitted to God like that? Is your life submitted to God where you are willingly laying your life down in his hands and saying that his purpose is is whatever his purposes are, you're, you're willing to do. Will you entrust your circumstances to God? We've said this before, but I added a little bit to it. To risk all for Jesus is to end all risk because he endured all risks on your behalf. Do you see verses four, 24 and 25? He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness by whose stripes we have been healed. He healed our life so we can be in the hands of God. So we can entrust our life to God. So we can live lives righteously. What is hindering What are you so focused on in your life that is hindering you to entrust your entire life, whatever hard situation it is, to God's hands? What's hindering it? I encourage you, go back to the notes and follow these five steps. Walk carefully each step. And commit your life into God's hands and watch what he begins to do. God healed you for this. So that way you can be in his hands to have the power to endure the suffering for this time of our lives. Will you submit for the Lord's sake? This is imperative. This is how we live before unbelievers. This is the only way. This is the secret to success in an unbelieving world. Will you submit to the Lord and do this? Lord, I I pray right now that we were confronted by an amazing outline that you have 
that you have given us on how to deal with the world in which we live in, in order to present Christ, to present your glory before people. Lord, I know that this is hard, but you've called us to be obedient. You've told us that we need to trust and to put our lives in your hands. Will we trust you and do that? And that's really the thing is, is, Lord, maybe someone here is still trusting in their life to the point that they're not saved. It's not about the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. Lord, maybe they are still focusing on themselves, that it's about their life that they're trying to live. Lord, I pray right now that through the power of your spirit, that you would call them to realize that they need you. They need to submit to you, to repent and say, Lord, here is my life. I am trusting and believing in what you did on the cross to pay for my sins. It is not about me. I'm entrusting my life to you. Here am I. Save me, Lord that they, this morning, that they would just, that they would respond to this call and, and that you're calling them to draw near and say, Lord, I repent. Here is my life. I am trusting in your payment for my sin. Lord, I pray that, that Lord, if there's someone here that's like that, they would make that decision today, that they would be obedient to that call in their life and submit their life to you and that they would believe in you. Lord, you told us that all we have to do is repent and believe and be saved from our sins. Lord, I I pray right now, there's someone here that needs to be saved from their sins. They realize that they haven't entrusted their life to you. Lord, that they would do that right now. They would wait no longer that as we're praying, all of us are praying, Lord, that they would submit to your gospel, your good news that you came to deal with the greatest problem we have, and that is our sin that separates us from a holy God, that we can't get to God except through Christ, who lived a holy life free from sin and endured all the hostility even being rejected by you and took upon all the sin of the world that you that he might pay for the sin. And that because of his payment on the cross and his resurrection, because he conquered death, because he was holy, because, Lord, you are righteous, that now we have been granted to receive your righteousness based on our repentance and trusting in you. Lord, may that just speak to the heart of someone here today. Lord, for the rest of us, many of us have gotten saved and we sat down and we are no longer living in submission to you, walking according to your way. And we're struggling in this world and we're struggling and we're tossed to and fro by every storm that we faced and we're we're struggling with the suffering that we're enduring because, Lord, our eyes are fixed out the windows or over the gate and back on the world and we're not focusing on the one who has given us life and we're not enjoying the, the fruit of the table. We're not enjoying 
entrusting our lives to you and the freedom that that comes and the peace and the joy that you provide in the midst of all the circumstances. And Lord, I pray that that if there's someone here that says, oh, I've not been submitting to you. And because of that, I've not been enduring the suffering that you've called us to endure. Lord, this morning, I pray that they would simply start with that last point and that they would choose to entrust their life to you. Say, Lord, my life is in your hands, not my circumstances. That they would begin there and then they would take that first step of obedience and then walk back in obedience the life that you've given us and trace your footsteps and learn to walk according to your ways and not the world. I pray, Lord, that it would just, Lord, I pray that you would bless our church to see many people come to know you because of our lives, entrusting our lives to you. May the Lord, we be ready to live before the unbeliever in such a way that they see your glory and go, whoa, I need to be saved. May that be our church, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.